Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Evolutionary.org Hardcore Podcast coming your way. Steve Smee here in the Mobster in the house. What's going on, man? Just good. We're going to kick some ass today, fella, and uh, talk about one of the most famous people on the planet. Yeah, this one we're going to do Mike Tyson. This is episode 106, so our, our series continues. Mike Tyson, not a bodybuilder, guys, but he is considered the most well-known boxer, maybe aside from Muhammad Ali, of all time. Um, so a little bit of background on him. He was born in Brooklyn, New York, 1966. Um, so as of this pod, uh, podcast, he's in the, his mid, mid-50s. Um, he's married three times, eight different children. His stats, 5'9", 5'10", in height, 71-inch uh, reach. And he had uh, an orthodox boxing stance. So his total fights, he had 58 official professional fights. He won 50 of them, 44 by KO. He had six losses, and he had two no contests. So um, he's been around quite a while, and we're going to go over a little bit of his history. Uh, Mobster and I, um, you know, we kind of, we know, we remember him, you know, growing up. And Mobster, what, you are in your 20s when he was at his peak? I think um, so, yeah. Yeah. Me- mid-20s and, and and we said before this guy is one of the few athletes on the planet who could be you just have to say Tyson and you know who he is same so, because The Rock is two names Elvis is one name Tyson is one of those people probably one of about 10 or 15 people that pretty much everybody's heard of one way or another on the whole of the planet earth he really is so Tyson had a really rough childhood um, he was born in um, really a rough part of New York City a rough part of Brooklyn. Um, at that time, his stepdad, his real dad, never he never even knew him. His stepdad abandoned him when he was a baby, when he was born. His mom had to take care of him and his siblings on her own. They were in a very high crime area. He got sucked into the, the street life. Um, he would do a lot of stealing. You get arrested. He was arrested 38 times, supposedly. Um, and a lot of those crimes were fighting and stealing and stuff like that. Just anything to get by when he was in his teenage years, 16 years old, his mom died and he got hooked up with a boxing trainer, a very good boxing trainer named Custa Amato. And he kind of took him under his wing and kind of became his father. And he considered him his father, um, over the years. So um, basically, Mike Tyson, uh, he ended up meeting this guy through another trainer at one of the juvenile centers that he had to go to uh, for one of his uh, thefts. So he ended up um, taking a liking to boxing. He was very talented with it. And he got into the amateur boxing for two years, and he turned pro at a very young age, 18 years old. So a lot of fans gravitated to him. They loved the way he was fearless. He was ferocious. When the bell rang, his strategy was kill his opponent. Like he had no interest in the fight lasting more than a round. He wanted you down that first round. So a lot of style of boxing was more endurance. Hey, we're going to just take our time. We're going to get the shots in. We're going to get points. His was, I'm going to knock you out. In 20 seconds. And a lot of his fights he did, especially when he went up against guys that were inferior to him. Yeah. I think one of his fights was 21 seconds. And there was very few fights that went beyond beyond a few rounds. And I think, as Steve said, that's what kind of made him attractive when we were the age when we were watching him because he was a monster. You had more uh, on the card with other fights. And then you waited for the heavyweight fight. And if you're a moneymaker, if you're, if you're in a promotion game, you kind of want the fight to last. You want people to buy drinks at the ringside. You want, you want the audience to stay there. But Tyson was coming out 
fucking smash. I use the 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 Brit sort of phrase, smash the fuck out of you inside of round one. There was no predictions on round seven. It just came out, monster you, put you on your ass, and, and when you're our age as we was when we were watching him, you're like, oh my fucking god! It kind of drove. It's like like a street fight with some style, but that's what it was like. It, was, it wasn't two or three minutes, it was a minute or less. It got a bit longer later on, but those first few fights when everybody started to pay attention to him, he was just a, a machine. He'd come out, smash you, put you on your ass, put, t- pick apart your, your, your style and, and, and throw one over the top, throw one underneath, and then you were on your ass. The guys that made noise uh, before the matches or whatever else, and I, I think even before he got kind of crazy, which we'll get to, he, he would just come out and, and make a nonsense of whatever you said you were going to do. Complete nonsense. And uh, it was blowing our minds. I'm still in America for Stephen over in It just was like, what the hell? This guy's a crazy, crazy monster. It kind of become entertaining on its own just for that style. So, you know, that, that, what the hell? It's just how good is this fella that he can do these things? Back to you, Steve. So Tyson, his first fight, he knocked out Hector Martinez first round, like we were saying. Yeah. He would go on to win 26 out of his next 28 fights, 16 knockouts in the first round. He loved <laughs> knocking your ass out in the first round. <laughs> 16, 20 weeks getting ready, and he does it inside of a minute or yeah. three minutes. That might have been uh, maybe some of his downfall, though, later. Because yeah, yeah, didn't later – fights he seemed to get very frustrated um now disaster struck for tyson in 85 his mentor custom auto he passed away and tyson was already very fragile mentally and it seems like at that time they didn't diagnose mental issues the way they do today so i think a lot of that became ignored so when this guy passed away that's when tyson really really went crazy and he seemed to um, start having his problems that really kind of – a combination of that and his childhood really screwed him. So um, Mike Tyson in 86, he ended up uh, beating Jesse Ferguson. This was his first time on television. And right off the bat, you could tell at um, 20 years old, he became the hu- youngest heavyweight champion in history when he, he beat uh, Trevor Burbeck for the WBC title. So Tyson was very good, not only in the ring, but also out of the ring. And that's what uh, gained his popularity. His interviews are legendary. Um, we'll include a link in the podcast notes. Those of you who are on YouTube, check out us on the website. Um, we don't leave links in on YouTube because of, of YouTube rules. But you can check out some of his interviews. They're fantastic. Yeah. His craziest moments. Yeah. But in his peak, in his peak, he may have been the best boxer of all time. It's hard to really know. Um, and he kind of, he was like Muhammad Ali part two, but it, Muhammad Ali part two on steroids in terms of his everything, his oh, off, off the ring antics and everything. Yeah, go ahead, Mobster. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that one of the things that, that Steve's touched upon is probably the secret of, of what made him a great boxer was was his emotions and it's only now probably in the last five or ten years he's 54 years of age i'm 56 it's only since he's become a father and had kids and kind of settled down when you do the interview if you look the interviews that he's had now he talks about how emotional he was how scared he was and how angry and the anger came from emotion the anger came from fear i didn't want to show people how scared he was so i i said crazy things and uh, I, I did crazy stuff. I was very aggressive, aggressive sexually, aggressive. All of that was fear. I mean, he, he describes his mum politely as being a sex worker. He's, I believe his auntie and his mum were both, let's, not, let's, let's be uh, clear about this, prostitutes. His background was just about as bad as it could be. And then you've got that emotion. He, he, when I've seen him in interviews in the last few years cry twice. And he cries because he's a father. He cries because he understands himself more. But we're, we're, so he's got that lack of understanding, but the drive, the aggression, the fear, the, the, the emotion, that's what kind of, again, I don't think we knew that when we watched him then, but we kind of had, you know, what, what makes him that man? What makes him 
this beast that we were watching. Uh, obviously, we, and we're going to touch on, upon on the steroid cycle and, and, and drugs, which he's admitted to, as well as the ones that we think he was using. If you've got all of that, and then you get into, as we will in, a, in a, shortly, what he was probably using, it's no wonder you're talking about a kind of like, it's like a bomb. So if someone's pulling the pin on this grenade and we're all going to stand back for 60 seconds and watch the bomb go off. It's, and that's come from this, this, this gut, this emotion, this passion, this kind of probably like a kid in a playground when you're kind of crying, but your arms are growing like windmills when you're having a fight with some fella. This is what it was like. It's just that he wasn't crying and, and he was aggressive with the reporters. He'd be aggressive during a press conference. And this wasn't fake. This wasn't for show. This was, this was kind of what he was like. And, and not just, you know, I'm, even, I think in one of his interviews, he says, I'm a thug. I'm, I'm from the streets. I think, uh, in, in fact, I know in the, in the link that we're going to provide you, uh, depending on which format you're looking at, he, he, he sat in abuse, uh, uh, one of the people at uh, the press conference, a pre-match build-up or whatever else. I will fuck you in the arse. I will make you my bitch. And, and he would genuinely looks like he's about to jump off the stage, run down and smash this guy in the face. And, and this was not pretense. This was not bravado. This was for real. And it's only now, as a, as a, a fully grown, mature uh, adult male, with responsibilities and going through all the craziness and the money losses and everything else, which again, we'll get to in a second, uh, that he realizes where all this comes from. It makes it easier for us now to talk now and, and kind of touch upon these things. Yeah, back to you, Steve. So in 1988, that was his peak. He beat Michael Spinks, considered the best boxer, heavyweight, everything was going good. But then 1990, it started to fall apart. Uh, he was into too much partying, spending all his money. His marriage wasn't going well. He fired his trainer. Never a good sign. Don King was screwing with him. Basically, Don King would have him do a fight, promise him millions of dollars. Then after the fight, Tyson would be like, okay, where's my money? And Don King was like, oh, I'll get it for you. I'll get it for you. He, so he wouldn't even pay him for his fight. Really, really bad stuff. So, of course, when you're in that situation, you're going to start losing motivation. And Tyson – he was already, you know, mentally fragile, and he was probably physically fragile too at that time. That's why he was self-medicating. So it started going down when he lost to Buster Douglas. He was a huge favorite, at least forty to one. Some bookies didn't even list the boxing match yeah. because of that. Four to one, yeah. The so to lose that is uh, is like, you know, that's that's a huge huge thing uh, to lose when you're that much of a favorite. So something was wrong for sure. He wasn't himself. Um, and then the next year, that was when he had his rape issue. Des Desiree Washington, Miss Black, Rhode Island. Um, he claimed it was consensual. The doctor said there was physical evidence saying otherwise. Tyson went to jail for three years. Then he started his comeback, but he was never quite the same. Um, he did beat Bruce Seldon which was a fight that was considered to be a rigged fight because Bruce Seldon kind of went down a couple times early in the match without even being hit. You can watch that video. It's, it's hilarious. Um, yeah. and Seldon would let her say, oh, Tyson hit me with his elbow. Well, I mean, if someone hits you with the elbow on your top of your head, you're not going to flop down like a fish. So hit you with was wrong. Beans, bro. <laughs> Wish yeah. it's a you realize he was a monster. Get out of the way. But I think, I think it's one of those situations where the fight was rigged and Selden probably bet against himself and Don King was in on it and uh, Don King pretty much told him just go down in the first round, you know, that that's it. So, but it was, yeah, I mean, that was when uh, boxing became really, really rigged and crooked um, in that, in that time. Thanks to, thanks to guys like Don King. Um Holyfield, he, he got a big match with Holyfield, Evander Holyfield, and then Len, he set something up with Lennox Lewis as well, that, that fight. Now, Holyfield, obviously, um, at that time, 34 years old, and he gave Tyson a really, really tough match. He beat him after 11 rounds. And then the second time around, Tyson, again, very, very frustrated. He loves knocking guys out in the first round. Didn't go well. And then he got frustrated because he thought Holyfield was headbutting him in the last match. And he thought he just couldn't get any, um, anything going against them. So I think he just lost his mind and just decided to bite the, the guy's ears off. So 
that was a, uh, I remember that that boxing match. That was uh, that was something. Um, you couldn't tell that he was having his ears bit off during the match, but then after when they showed the guy's ears, it was like bit off. Yeah. Steve and I were talking about this off air, and one of the things we said was that this was on pretty much the front page of every newspaper, certainly of the main newspapers around the world. Front front page photograph. I don't know what the, who the photographer was or what picture they were using, but they all had this picture of Holyfield's, Holyfield's ear. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, the, the, as, we, as we were talking about, this is, went lost through mismanagement, through the drugs, uh, narcotics, specifically uh, cannabis and cocaine, which he admitted to uh, in reports since uh, smoking and consuming uh, cocaine before fights, lost something like $200 million. Uh, That's a hell of a fortune that I built up. There was money, he sued uh, King for his money. The stuff that was going on, the frustration during that fight, Holyfield was just a better fighter. And yeah, that photograph was front page news around the world. Uh, kind of in, in the way that the media likes to do sometimes, a bit of a, a start of his, his, his downfall. And it's only again, as I said earlier on, in recent years, uh, he's started to back up a comeback, started doing uh, lots of celebrity stuff, lots of interviews, you know, meet Mike Tyson, those audiences with and that kind of stuff. And specifically his hot boxing podcast, uh, video stuff that he does on YouTube. And you see him doing speeches and whatever else. And he talks about that fight. In fact, I, I watched one yesterday as part of the research uh, for today. And uh, he had Holyfield on. And they were talking about what made Holyfield a better fighter. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, my brother and all this kind of stuff and the way that it hit, they're good buddies now. But uh, when you're in the ring, when someone's punching you in the face, there's no friends. That comes later on when you realise, again, Holyfield's background, his background, what made them the people that they were, this kind of stuff. Holyfield, for example, had a very strong mother figure. And she was the one that would encourage him to get out there and fight and do your best, et cetera, et cetera. And I think now Tyson would look at him as a kind of uh, uh, an example of how he can be as a father. So you see all this kind of stuff. I mean, let's, let's, let's get on to the drugs, Steve. What do you think? I mean, we were talking about, as, as I said already, the cocaine and, and the cannabis, which he's admitted to taking before fights, literally in, in the changing room, in the run-up, in the hour before a fight, he's getting high. And then he's coming out and having his fights. This is when it's all a bit of a mess with a with hundred hangers on and all this kind of craziness. But let's talk about the yeah. steroid. Yeah, so, you know, Mike Tyson admitted before Lennox Lewis bow, he, he used cocaine, used weed. Even before the inter- post-game, uh, post-match interview, he used. So he was heavy into drugs, self, again, self-medicating. Uh, the cocaine made him crazy. The marijuana helped him relieve mental, physical pain. Check drops, probably a milligram within an hour of his fights. Um, that made him even more crazy. That made him even more aggressive. And then short ester steroids. We're talking maybe test prom, trend ace, but more likely test suspension and trend no ester because those are not going to be detectable. So they're in and out of your system. That one I mentioned before was I said for, famous for powerlifters, uh, which we've mentioned already, those drugs. And halo testing, something for uh, aggression used by uh, many fighters, of those, uh, we'll get to the, the testing parts of that in a second. Uh, this stuff is very short acting in your system aggression. You really shouldn't be losing this for any more than two weeks if you actually use it as a cycle. But yeah, this is pre-fight stuff. If you're already aggressive, you're already passionate and you're already emotional, and then you're putting this stuff into your system. Uh, I think the cocaine, I think we talked about uh, separately where we say, if you've got ego issues and you take cocaine, they're just going to be worse. So this, he's pretty much doing everything short of crack or injecting adrenaline. He's doing pretty much, in our opinion, with the drugs that he's mentioned himself and our opinion of the drugs that we think he was taking as much as he possibly can to make him the, the ring monster that we saw for ourselves. Um, we're going to talk about drugs in uh, sports, specifically fighting sports. And something I want to address is that we've, we get on our forums, we get guys asking about drugs for fighting. Now, in the various federations and especially in boxing associations, they don't always test. Well, they certainly didn't always test. I'm looking at links of 2011 and 2007 
for these things. They were more concerned that you had some sort of medical condition which you could pass on to the other fighter through blood transfer, to yourself, to your ring, to the guys at ringside, and obviously to the referee in the ring. That would be number one. We know that uh, in MMA and in the cage fighting stuff that they do test for steroids and specifically, and this is something we've seen multiple times in the, uh, the Psalms where they've had tests come back two years. This is second sample stuff. All right, guys. So today, Mobster summed it up pretty good. So today, look, the guys are, are – the hard, I think the hard drugs are way, way less today. They're transitioning to maybe um, – you know, some type of other ways to self-medicate. Um, they're doing a lot of mental exercises. They're doing a lot of relaxation, meditation, getting away from those hard drugs that Mike Tyson used. I think today also, Winstrol is a popular one. If you look at the MMA fighters, a lot of them like to use Winstrol because it dries you out. It, it helps you make weight. And then Halo, aggression, I think also SARMs. We've seen guys get busted for SARMs a lot. So a lot of them like to use SARMs because SARMs don't uh, mess with your weight. So if you're in a, a welterweight or a featherweight or some of the other uh, weight classes, um, you want to make weight for your match. Uh, you have to make weight. You have to be in that weight range. So they'll use things to kind of get them in range. So I think we're also seeing, you know, the no esters, the suspensions, test suspension, trend no ester. They don't want to get busted for this stuff. So, you know, they, um, it's not too stringent when it comes to, um, you know, boxing, but there is some testing. So they want to make sure that they don't get busted for it. And we've seen guys get busted for it. Anything else to add, uh, Mobster? Yeah, I mean, something you and I discussed off air before. I've been talking about at the level that uh, boxes and, for that matter, the cage fighters are at now. This is big, big money, people. I've been seriously, seriously big money. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, never mind the, the actual prize money, the big fight stuff, the promotions, and the cost of us watching these fights. is uh, It could be $30, $40 just to watch the fight and the card for that evening. So it could be hundreds of millions of dollars. And something that Steve and I discussed off air was that at that level, we're talking about high-end strength and conditioning coaches costing hundreds of thousands of dollars for a fight. We're talking about nutritionists costing fifty dollars to $100,000. And if there is going to be drug use, we're probably talking about uh, gurus and advisors that are getting paid $50,000, $60,000. Because when you're talking about a $30 million or more payday and you're talking about a $100 or $200 or $300 million fight with, with everything for the promotions, the money that could be made, the cost, etc. It's a serious, serious business. And it's literally for one evening of one, you know, it could be for that one round. It could be for 12 rounds. If it's for a card, it's three or four rounds of fighting. So it's not just this, this Tyson-type people are fighting. This with his comeback, uh, Wood Joe's Jr. But it's talking about a bunch of other people, 10 fights on the card. This is hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's going to be done seriously. It's going to have, like I said already, it's going to have a higher nutrition. It's going to have a strength and conditioning coach. It's going to have a boxing coach. Sometimes we're talking about sparring coaches. We're talking about people that are going to help them. Tyson was famous for, uh, which is it's quite the, the, the boxing uh, historian, uh, research on his part, uh, studied history, which is something he got from Gus, the, the studying of great fights and great battles and the mental aspects of it. So all of these things are going to be included. And what we sometimes seen with other uh, fight, uh, weight divisions specifically is they have to come down. Every weight is not so important, but you're still not talking about products like Dynabol. You're not talking about watery drugs or whatever. You're not talking about drugs that are adding pounds and pounds of mass. These guys need to be lean. They need to be mean. They need to have endurance. So drugs which help with endurance. And again, Psalms would be the great one there. But again, as we said already, if you are cage fighting, if you're MMA fighting, you have to be careful because guys are getting tested. Boxing doesn't seem to have quite that approach. And sometimes, I think the only, I'm, I'm thinking of very rare cases, and I'd want to double check this, it's extremely rare for them to be accused of using steroids and extremely rare for them to test for it because they're not interested in that. Uh, they, they want the guys aggressive. They want the guys entertaining. It's probably not in their best interest as a business to, to look at that kind of stuff. I have a bit of talk about uh, the training side of things, Steve. I think old yeah. school training versus the modern stuff. What do you reckon about the old school stuff? Well, back in those days, Tyson, he was, we all know he's blessed genetically. And, you know, we know that when he was in one of his school for boys, 
Uh, one of his uh, things that they sent him to for stealing and fighting that he started lifting weights. And as a very young teenager, he was lifting over 200 pounds already. So the guy is blessed. If you even look at him when he was uh, at his peak, his chest, huge chest, huge neck, huge traps. He's just very, very blessed. Um, but the thing is, you know, he's his basically his body structure um, gave him a little disadvantage because some of these other guys like Lennox Lewis or Van der Holyfield, they're taller than him. So they had a longer, they had, they had more ability for a reach. So that kind of gave him a disadvantage in some way. So that may have been why he got frustrated later in his career going up, up against these guys at the, in the heavyweight division. So, yeah. but we know, we know he, he, he was definitely weight training um, and the training leading up to a fight, 50, 60 hours a week, four or five weeks before the fight. I mean, it was the, the amount of training these guys do is unbelievable. And his trainer, Custy Amato, didn't believe in using headgear because if you use headgear when you're training, then when you actually do the fight, you're going to be much more prone to be hitting, hit, getting hit in the head. You're going to almost invite it. So he didn't even believe in that. So, I mean, it was unbelievable. And Tyson, he would lose, you know, 20 pounds of weight just from that training camp that Cuss would, would put him through. So a lot of pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, working the bag. He would work on a 300-pound bag at just, thir- at just 13, 14 years old. He was hitting a 300-pound bag. So by the time Tyson became 18, I mean, he was an expert because of those punching bags. And, you know, his technique was, was strong and his punch was strong. I mean, if you're used to hitting a 300-pound bag, imagine going up in a ring against a, a, a human that you could um, easily break bones and, and break things. So a lot of, lot of cardio, too. He would do uh, three miles with 50 pounds on his back. So it was a lot of training with weights. Like his sit-ups, he would do a 50-pound weight. With the pull-ups, he would do a 50-pound weight. A lot, of, a lot of this type of training involved weights, uh, involved training your body to have a lot of pressure put on it. This way, when you actually did go in the ring, you were loose, you were able to jump around versus jumping in the ring with a, a 50 or 100-pound weight tied to you. Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of the modern stuff, and I'm thinking of a, uh, a British heavyweight who's sponsored by a supplement company over here in the UK, they're far more likely to use supplements. They're far more likely to have a nutritionist on board giving them advice on this kind of stuff. There's a lot more uh, of what we would consider to be uh, cycle training, you know, the peaks of strength. Tyson, for example, was famous back in the day, especially on his way up to becoming a champion, to fight two times a month, which is extremely unusual for a young heavyweight, never mind a, 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 a champion or a contender to, to a championship. So that's changed. Uh, I can, I, I, and one of the things we're talking about, which just in terms of the training, which also includes the nutritional side, is that uh, if you look at the modern day boxes, food intake, what they're eating like, it's very clean. And in their way, and, and this is something that we've talked about in previous podcasts, bodybuilders lead the way nutritionally. And if you look at a modern heavyweight boxer preparing for a fight, it's very a much, much cleaner diet uh, than than would have been the case when uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago, you're going to have an, uh, sometimes, and again, this is the last few weeks of preparation, you're going to have an on-site or in-the-camp chef. This, this guy's going to be nutritionally trained, working with a nutritional advisor to bring you to a peak. Quite often, uh, I mean, they pose like boxes at the weight, as a bodybuilder, should I say, at the weigh-in, with abs. So you, we, we have seen the occasional, which is extremely rare, overweight fighter do well but for the most part your heavyweight boxer is as lean or certainly uh, relatively lean compared to heavyweight boxers of old and and as lean as middleweights and lightweights is the functional power and strength is incredibly important weights are still used and 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 will continue to be used but just by way of an example a boxing buddy mind you who competes in white collar boxing doesn't train his arms or specifically doesn't train his biceps doesn't do bicep curls or whatever so he found that if his arms were of a certain size or if he trained his arms and then sparred or did bag work uh bull work or whatever else his arms got such an awful pump 
that it become impossible to hold his keep his guard up and, and spar and do the work that's required. We know, for example, one of the things that they've kept both from old school and in the modern terms of training is they still will spar for 15 rounds. They they fight hard. Sorry, so I say train hard, fight easy. And that 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 rule still applies. Uh, nutritionally way more focused. There's there's literally pre-fight diets which includes a, a relatively decent amount of carbs. So they've taken all this nutritional stuff that the bodybuilders and us guys that have been lifting weights and, and working with nutrition for years and years and years and apply that to boxes. It's not steak and eggs and you know bags of potatoes and all that kind of crazy stuff or, or literally, uh, and I'm talking about 50, 60 years ago now, bottles of beer at the side and, and you know, doing stupid stuff. It would be this way more nutritionally focused because again, this is a big, big business thing. Uh, it's good it's it's not even that bad as a heavyweight but it's a lot worse or should i say a lot more important if you're if you're one of the lighter weight classes because you need to be lead there's no there's no it's no good you don't want sparse flesh you don't want to be fat you don't want to be out of condition so the bodybuilding diets uh training on point there's uh, certain bags and contraptions you can buy now that's going to help you, but it's no, there's no, I think with boxing and, and to a lesser degree, the cage stuff, there is no, uh, you need to be in the cage, you need to be in the ring, there's no substitute for those things. That all remain the same. I think there's a wonderful turn of phrase, I don't believe it's Tyson, but I might be misquoting, it says everybody's got a plan so you're punched in the face. So the training staff can be on point, but you still need that aggression, you still need to be the kind of person that wants to have a terror, wants to have a fight. That doesn't change. But in terms of nutrition, it's on point, in terms of strength and conditioning coaches, which we've never had in the past, you still can't train your arms too much for those obvious reasons. You still need to, to do some road work. It might not be four or five o'clock in the morning like a Rocky film anymore. It might be, you know, up on the trails. It might be uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. It doesn't have to be done at the crack of dawn, although that does help with your psyche. The, the grind still helps. So that, that's that. So there's the modern stuff. And I give, as, as again, going back to the cage fighting reference again, they will work with different coaches for different things. So it's not one person doing everything. It's not an old fellow with a spit bucket anymore. That's still there, but it's a bunch of other people too. And again, $30 million per, for, the, for the win, $300 million for the, for the fight itself, four or $500 million for these really, really big fights and stuff that we're watching these things in bars at four o'clock in the morning. This is big, big money. You don't mess about with big, big money. You're not using a skipping rope and, a, and, a, and training in your garage anymore at this kind of level. So, I mean, Tyson's on his, on his comeback now, uh, this Roy Jones Jr. fight that I referred to earlier on. And one of the things that's fascinating for uh, us as uh, boxing fans, or specifically for Tyson fans, is the aggression. And uh, we've seen video samples of this already. His speed as a 54-year-old fighter, essentially doing an exhibition fight, his speed. I would not want to get in a ring with him, Steve. You, have you seen that clip of him? Sparring, I think, and, and the speed of a 54-year-old man, a, a former heavyweight champion of the world, he's, he's moving his arms around. If I wave my arms on, on, on the camera talking to you now, he's, he's, he's crazy fast. And he looks, he looks as aggressive. And I think there was a, 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 one of the uh, podcasts of his own where he's talking about the fight. And he gets kind of emotional and, 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 and borderline angry up there. He's ready for a fight in that room, talking to his buddy, talking to the guests about how people should not make any mistakes about... The, well, I think the phrase is that you do not want to poke the beast. There's, there's, there's do not make any mistakes about thinking I'm less of a man than I was before. That when I'm doing this stuff, when I train, when I get ready for a fight like I am now with Roy Jones Jr., the beast is back. The, 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 the cage door has been opened and uh, the, the way that he talks during that interview, literally just a few sentences, it's kind of scary. Uh, it's, don't, don't make a mistake. I think he's a 54-year-old guy and it's going to be some kind of sloppy thing like we've seen with Hulk Hogan and Sly Stallone in a movie. It's not going to be like that at all. Uh, Roy Jones Jr. Is, is supposed to be a, a very technical fighter and much more, if you like, of a boxer or a fighter than the brawler, perhaps, perhaps Tyson was. And I think something else, and I touched on it earlier on with Tyson, and this is very important. 
it probably easier now with the technology that we have. But Tyson used to sit down with old cine, eight mil cine tapes with Gustavo and research. He's a, if you, it would literally watch the style of the other guy and have Gus and himself take these fighters' style apart, work out what needs to be done. That's why he was able to find breaks in their defense and, and take these guys apart in a minute, two minutes, three minutes. I, if you think he's not doing that with Roy Jones Jr. now, you're making a mistake. Don't bet. I would not want to bet against him. I probably, if I was a bookie, I'd probably give this fight, it'd be 50 50. It'd be evens because Roy Jones Jr. is such a technical fighter. But if there's a hint of that aggression, of that passion, and of that emotion, of the monster being unleashed, the chain being taken off his collar, then, then it's going to be something else to watch. Steve. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the way the, the transition from the way they used to train till now, I think that more, the difference is more efficiency. And we know Mike Tyson from the start of his training camp before a fight, uh, a month, month, month and a half before the fight. I mean, he would do, you know, 15,000 dips, 60,000 sit-ups, 15,000 push-ups, 15,000 shrugs, Neck, lots of let neck exercises. I mean, the amount of pounding on the body was unbelievable. It was complete, like crazy. Like if you were to try that, or I were to try that, or anyone listening were to try it, you would probably end up just injured. But the amount of training that they used to do, I think today they're more efficient with their training. It's not so much of the at much volume. I think they're just they've learned to be efficient. There was a, there's a, a clips in the documentaries you can watch online, people, where you see, there was, I think the comment was that he was knocking out two sparring partners a week. So there, it was very difficult for them to find sparring partners. And I think in the video clips that we can see now in more recent years, and specifically for this fighting training, the, the guys are wearing these huge, great padded things that must weigh 40 pounds on their own. And Tyson is pushing these people across the ring, uh, abandoning on them. So there's probably a, a better way of protecting the coach or the fella that he's fighting in order so that he's not actually hurting, physically hurting as he used to, the sparring partners. And I think, I think I've seemed to recall, and I believe it was in a, a magazine article, that he would have 14 or 15 guys lined up. And what I mean by that is, so two or three uh, a day, for, and these 14 guys would be there, paid, whatever they were being paid, $500,000, whatever, for the week. And if he was knocking out two of these guys every week in his build-up to the fights, whereas now he'd be working with a, a, a boxing trainer, boxing coach, someone in the ring, and they've got these huge, great pads, these three, four-inch thick pads, these great big, heavy 50-pound contraptions or whatever it is they're wearing that allow them to have someone like Tyson Pandon on them and not knocking out these guys every five minutes, two, two times a week, going through 14 or 15 sparring partners a week. So it's much more efficient. And I said, in just in terms of the money, it's all really even in terms of inflation or whatever else. But I think that the value of these fights is above and beyond wherever it's been in the past. Probably because we have greater access, the, the satellite technology and cable stuff, it makes it huge. There are bars here uh, up the road from me in Cardiff, the capital city that are open at 4 a.m. for a title fight. I can only imagine that they'll do something similar. The, as I said earlier on, the $30 just to watch this stuff on cable. And then you're talking about a potential audience of two to 300 million. That's $600 million right there for, for a big fight, for a big fight card. So the money's that much bigger. The business is that much bigger. And therefore the way that uh, top fighters like Tyson would prepare now is become that much more business-like. It has to. You can't do this stuff as I said earlier, with a spit bucket in a backstreet gym, that might be where you come from. That might be where your foundation comes from as a fighter of water rebels. But when you're talking about a three, four, five, six hundred million dollar fight, it's big business. There are sponsors involved just in the training and the coaching. You will have uh, multiple uh, coaches for different aspects. You will have probably press, press people. You have people that are specifically going to work with you, the hell you're going to talk during the press conferences, what you're going to be like at the weigh-in, the promotional side, some of the bullshit that's involved in some of the stuff that they say there. As I said, I don't think Tyson was bullshitting with the stuff he used to say back in the day, but he'd probably be more professional, more more business-like. I mean, heck, he's a businessman, Steve. If something actually owns a percentage of a business, that as uh, distributor or manufacturer, something like that, of cannabis. 
Uh, hence the, uh, and I referenced it earlier on the Hot Boxing podcast where they're sitting there smoking during the podcast. He's a businessman now. So I can see that, that the way that these guys, all fighters, are trained at that high of a level, they have to know more about promotion. It's not just we're going to bring him in like some sort of show pony and sit him down. They know how this works. They would have had managers talk them through this. They would have them specifically advise how to talk to the press. So all of that and the training and the nutrition and, as we referred to earlier on, the, the, the uh, supplementation, and I'm being polite when I use that, will all be on point, properly done, properly advised. If there's tests, I would see them using masking agents if certain products are testing for. Uh, and you can, as I said earlier, you can, you can have your belt taken away from you, you can have your, your winnings taken away from you if you don't get this stuff on point. It's incredibly important now. Way, way more than it's ever been in the past. So, yeah, back, back in the day, much more basic, much more simplified, very old school. Now, it's, everything is a business and it's important. I mean, just with a promotional side, Instagram, YouTube, the interviews, every single thing you, you do with the press, boxing magazines, almost secondary compared to everything else that's going on. So that stuff would be different. And you're probably just going to need to hire someone just for that so you can be focused. Yeah, back to you, Steve. Let's get into diet. Let's finish up the show talking about diet. What did Mike Tyson do back in the day? So we have a little bit of an idea of what he did based yeah. on cuss. Um, some of them, there's some training videos and there's some diet um, strategies that um, Custe Amato, you know, had that's been copied and put on the internet. So, you know, we could talk about what Tyson did, what we think, you know, his diet was really, really simple diet, three times a day, protein, carbs. Um, he would take vitamins. He would take some protein shakes. Back in those days, during the 80s, was the protein shake decade. That was when protein shakes came around. They would mix up the protein shakes with vitamins and take that after their training. They really believed that that re rejuvenated the body and replenished it. Uh, Mike Tyson also loved fruit juice. He drank a lot of different types of tropical fruit juices. That was something he loved. And also, you know, he is, we know from his, um, the housekeeper, that was living with Cuss, that when Tyson was staying there, that Tyson would sneak in some sugary snacks um, in the middle of the night. So, you know, obviously when you're training, you got to be lean. Um, he was obviously um, probably hungry a lot, you know, but he grew up being hungry. So to him, that's not anything, anything different. So, you know, that little snack that he wanted, a little ice cream that he wanted to hit, that kind of was his little treat, maybe some comfort food that he would he would do. But when you're on that much cocaine, <laughs> you know, you're you might not be hungry, you know, as much. So I think that kind of helped him stay lean being on the cocaine. Um, and, you know, that was pretty much his diet. Vegetables, like I said, protein, carbs, veggies, lots of water, lots and lots of water. You got to drink, drink a lot of to to replenish yourself. And, you know, uh, that's, that's what it was. It wasn't really anything magical in those days because he had the genetics. He had the genetics. So with that much training, you know, he's probably stuck to three big meals a day, three moderate to big meals, and, and that's it. Monster, you want to hit on that and then tell us what the guys do today. Documentaries, you actually see them. I don't know if it's a, a clip where they're sitting around a table in a kind of group situation, which would have been outside of New York, eating what we would consider to be healthy nutritionist food, but it wasn't wasn't uh, anything a special kind of diet or anything like that. And of course, with the work that they're doing in the in the gym and in the boxing and the running and everything else, they're going to be they're going to be putting away quite a bit of calories and certainly burning a lot of energy, uh, even if they aren't trying to make weight for a fight. Whereas now. Uh, it's far more bodybuilder-like as a diet, far more nutritious and far more uh, uh, food group specific, you know. So, for example, a bodybuilder we know would diet down for a competition and then literally they're talking to fill out with regards to carbs and glycogen replenishing and filling out the muscle. The, the boxer doesn't need this. What he does, of course, need is he needs to be lean, he needs to be mean, he needs everything that's going in his mouth to be functional. And then pre-fight, you're looking to probably carb up a little because it's not, uh, it doesn't need four or 5,000 calories, but he certainly needs to have some carbohydrates in his diet, a little protein, a little bit of fat, but carbohydrates to get him through the fire. So it, the, where in the old days, perhaps, uh, 
you know, you're talking about being given a, a healthy stew that's been made by uh, the housekeeper. I suspect now there's a lot more meal prep involved. And especially in the last few weeks uh, and pre-fire, what, what, what they have in the morning, what they would have in the afternoon for an evening match. How long before the match would they not have food? I don't want to have a, a, a belly full of food sloshing around inside my gut if I'm about to have a punch up. So it's going to be like that. And then it was going to be whether, uh, both with the promotional side, whether they need to be seen with an energy or whether they'd actually be having some kind of carbohydrate drink before the fight. And then during the fight, for example, or, or in fact, probably post-fight, uh, sometimes with promotional stuff, you'll see them sitting there with some kind of energy drink or a watery drink that's been promoted. But the reality is I would have my boxer come straight out of the ring, make sure he's medically okay, and then in the, change, in the changing room, I would probably want the recovery process to start immediately. So whether that would be some sort of a protein drink or a small meal, something just to get something in his belly to give him energy, start his recovery from the match, which means he might be physically need to be attended to by a doctor, or he might be fine. And then right, as we're getting him in a change room, we're massaging him, we're doing all that kind of stuff. So the fight recovery starts the moment he gets out of the ring, whether it's shoving a bottle of water in his hand, we're getting him something to eat in the changing room, and then sitting him down at a press conference. For example, and we've seen this with other athletes, it's incredibly annoying if you've just played a game of NFL or you've uh, had a fight or you've done strongman and then they put the microphone in your face moments after these things are finished. It's very, very difficult. Ideally, you want a press conference a few minutes after that. So there's your opportunity to, to start the recovery. And again, it's like a bodybuilder. So I, the... the the, we have the, the chef and nutritionist and the process is going to be much, much more scientific, especially in the build-up build to a fight and immediately after a fight. Very much more like a bodybuilder. Um, maybe, maybe they still do. And I think we'd all want one after we'd had a punch-up. We might want to sit down and have some pizza and some ice cream and a Coca-Cola, but uh, that's not ideal. Uh, and if you want to, you're going to fight the punishment on your body. I'm going to want to start that eating process as quickly as I possibly can. I might want to have a beer. I might want to celebrate my win. But equally, I don't want to be still in pain and suffering and, and sore and everything else after a fight. So let's get that process started straight away. It might not be what they want to do, but it's what they need to do. And and that's what we're looking at. We, we would talk about these things in terms of what we advise people to do. It's what you should do, what the ideal is versus what you want to do and, and uh, you've got to remember with boxes I think sometimes there's an element of all fighters never mind boxes in terms of uh, if they don't fight it's not unusual to see them out of shape if they don't train that they're going to be doing drugs and going for a beer and doing crazy stuff and in fact sometimes it's a saving grace for them so the same thing applies to food they go from being kind of lazy or normal with their approach to food and their, their approach to alcohol and whatever else to being quite fastidious. So we can understand that there's a, a need to let go, but the reality is that these should be professional athletes. And if they want to stay in the game long and do well and fight successfully again and again and again, maybe two fights a year, maybe one fight a year, but be a champion, multiple champion, multiple uh, title holder, then you need to be on point with this stuff. And, the best example, as I said earlier, one is being like a professional bodybuilder and specifically the bodybuilding approach to a competition. That kind of diet is going to be a bodybuilder's diet. I'm looking at stuff here and this is an example. I'm just reading this from the internet right here. And it says, I'm talking about natural car carbohydrates from sweet potatoes, peas, beans, whole grain. This is healthy food. It might not be what they want to eat all the time, but it's food that's going to get them into shape, in condition, to allow them to do their training. It's optimal food. We're trying to make the best of this guy. It's, it's kind of a, a bit slightly unkind, like a racehorse. And it needs to be fed exactly the right foods, to be as healthy as he can, as fit as he can, to have the endurance. The punching stuff is something else completely. That's a psyche thing. That's a physical thing. But the food stuff we can control the uh, steroid stuff we could control, the performance enhancing drugs we could control. Everything else is in the lap of the boxer himself, what he puts in, whether he's got guts, whether he's got heart. But we can we can do this other stuff and we can talk about these other things. And as I said, I think the, the bodybuilder, the professional bodybuilder, the competitive bodybuilder, is going to be very, very close to a fight 
that's coming up for a, 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 a fighter that's coming up for a big competition. It's going to be right there. And maybe not a super sight out of competition and then you run up to a fight or a championship or, or specifically a belt. But certainly during the run up, 100%. It's going to be on point. If it ain't on point, then what are you doing? I'm not going to do 15 rounds of training. I'm not going to do all that running. I'm not going to do that network and that back work and that bag work. And I'm not going to do my standing pilots and then go out some pie and mash or, or drink beer. That would be incredibly stupid. Why, why are you punishing yourself to eat stupidly? No, it needs to be on point, nutritionally as good as it possibly can be, so that you're the best fight you can be on the day. Well, that's whether you're doing an, a white collar amateur fight or whether you are a wannabe heavyweight professional. Back to you, Steve. Yeah, and we can look at Tyson Fury, who I believe is British as well, right? He's from your, he's your from, people. From, from the uh, gypsy, uh, our, our gypsy background, the Romany, whatever it is, background, yeah. But, but he, oh, okay, so he's not, but he, his, 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 his diet, he's basically, he eats a lot of calories off season. Um, he'll get in a lot of calories, but he more, his, his focus on the foods is energetic foods. He's going to put energetic foods in his body. Fruits. Okay. We see a lot of people scared of fruits, lots of fruit, lots of carb, healthy carbs, lots of you know, good quality Greek yogurt, lots of, um, he gets seafood every day. He'll alternate chicken and steak every other day. So one day he'll do chicken, the next day he'll do steak. So he focuses on energetic foods. And then when he's trying to cut down for a fight to be as lean and mean as possible, he likes to just cut off the calories and go to uh, more of a ketogenic diet. So that's what he does. And he's the, the top rated boxer right now in the world overall at least for his uh, weight weight class which is um he he weighs in usually 250 260 so we can compare him to what mike tyson would have done back then since they're both you know considered uh, heavyweights so um it'd be interesting to see how mike tyson will go up against him today because tyson fury is is a much much bigger guy than, than tyson was so yeah definitely you know, I think we've come a lot, a long way, definitely with diet manipulation. You know, he, he goes, he's, he's putting he, lots of carbs, lots of carbs. And then boom, before his, his match cuts off the carbs, goes into a more of a ketogenic, no carb diet. But, um, you know, everyone refers to ketogenic diets as no carbs. So that's the way he describes it. And, um, you know, that's, that's what they do guys. I mean, they, and like Marpster said, these guys have the top nutritionists, they have their own chefs cooking them their meals. So really they don't have to worry about the food quality back in Tyson's days. They did have to worry about food quality back in those days. You didn't have conventional foods the way we do today. Everything now, um, the meats are very low quality. Um, so you have to make sure that you get the best cuts of meat, the best fruits, organic fruits, the organic vegetables, all that stuff. Things have changed. So now they need people actually hiring people to make sure they get the high food quality. Something that I mentioned uh, off air to Steve in previous conversation uh, as part of the research for this podcast was that the all of these people that are helping a fighter prepare for a fight especially at the, the top level that i've described earlier quite often they're on a reward scheme so the nutritionist the the training coach the strength and conditioning coach all this kind of people if they help you win a fight it's not unusual to see written into their contract so it's in their own best interest to be as professional as possible and to get you ready as possible it's, it's quite often written into their contract where they can win so they, they are, if the fighter wins, they get paid more money. So let's say for argument's sake that I was Tyson strength and conditioning coach. I'm getting him down the gym. I, I'm, I'm getting him to smash the weights. I'm getting prepared for a fight. And uh, for my time and for my trouble, they're going to give me, I don't know, $10,000 a week. Now I do, I don't know, 8, 10, 12, 16, 20 weeks, whatever. Now, if he says, as a way of motivating me, and I suspect this is very much the case, in order to get the fighter like Tyson ready, it's in my interest, and therefore I might be rewarded if Tyson wins. If his strength doesn't flag, if I've worked with him on his endurance, if I've worked with him on his nutrition, whatever else, and these things are on point, and he wins his fight, 
then not only do I get my $10,000 rich, perhaps I get another $15,000, $20,000 as a reward because he won. His endurance didn't disappear. He was lean. He was ready. He was in condition. Perhaps if, for example, I got him to make weight for a fight is a reward. And so this is where that business aspect come in. This is where they're much more professional. Tyson Fury, just as an example, we've seen him out of condition and we've seen him in condition. He's very much a guy that needs to fight in order to be focused in his training. He's in his mental approach, his physical approach, et cetera, et cetera. He, I'm six foot three. I believe Tyson's is something like six foot six, six foot eight. We were ridiculous 80 something inch reach, whatever else. And his uh, ability to uh, change and transform is kind of old school. He shouldn't be really letting himself get that out of shape between matches. A famous uh, British boxer, I believe, uh, middleweight was Ricky Hatton. Uh, it, was, it was notorious for dropping two stone, three stone, which is somewhere like 40 pounds, 42 pounds, three stone. Uh, in getting condition, he would go out, there was photographs and videos of him on holiday in Spain, drinking and doing all kinds of stuff. And he would have to come back and drop two stone, so 28 pounds, 42 pounds in order to get into competition, uh, uh, fighting shape. And uh, the video clips of him now as a retired boxer, I believe he's something like 250 pounds uh, on, on, a, on a middleweight frame and a middleweight height, just to give you an idea of where, where he allows himself to go now. Tyson was doing that. But yeah, very much. I would think that the, the professionalism of the people that are helping you get into uh, fight, championship fighting shape there's going to be a reward for getting you into shape. There's going to be a reward, not just a cash reward, but a, a, and a bonus for these things. So it's way more like that stuff. It, it, it's the same when uh, the, the horse racing people, the everybody gets a part of the money when, when they win the 100000 or $200,000 at these big races included. Boxers are much the same. It can be a bit of a pain if you're, doing the, you're the only person in the fight getting punched, but uh, everybody else has an interest to get you into that winning shape, that winning condition, the right mindset, everything else. So yeah, there's this much more professional, much more contractual uh, and uh, much more in my interest as a strength coach, conditioning coach, nutritionist, whatever, to have you ready and do your damnedest when you get in the ring. So yeah, they're not mucking around anymore. Yeah, it's a team. It's a it's a teamwork. It's just like a, a car racing. Yeah, yeah. The race car driver is the only one who gets credit. No, the the, the mechanics, the, uh, the the sponsors, they even made it possible. I mean, everything that that goes into it. Um, it takes a lot in the, in the background that you don't see. So yeah. um, it's kind of like a movie. You know, the actor. You see the actor in the movie, but you don't know that there's a director, there's a producer, there's hundreds of hundreds of people that made that movie possible the yeah. wardrobe people everything so it's like uh yeah it's the same thing and it's it's definitely a huge team now and it's it's a business like monster said it's a business it's not like the old days where you just had a trainer and you had a manager and then the manager was trying to backstab you and steal money from you and your trainer was only sticking with you because he thought that you know and the only time you saw the ring man was the day of the fight or maybe maybe the day before the fight. Now these people are part of your team pretty much from day one and certainly in the build-up, yeah. 12, 16, 20 week build-up to a fight. You, you, you've got maybe, I would say 20 or 30 people around you getting you ready for a fight at the level that we're talking at now. Tyson almost certainly will be working with half a dozen people right now. And the closer it gets to the fight, the more people are going to be there. It's going to be I mean, yeah. Back then, back then, those people would be just people using him for his wealth, trying to skim, skim off of him and just people from his childhood or whatever. Now that would be out of the question. No. Now you see, even in like, like in the NFL, you see guys, NBA, NFL, they say, I don't talk to anybody from a childhood. They're all trying to hit me up for money. They're all trying to use me, whatever. So they're smart. They, they know that's my past. I'm going to keep it in the past. I'm just going to focus on this is a business. I'm, I'm handling my business. I'm not going to, you know, um, fall prey to these, these people trying to grift off of me. So if he hasn't learned his lesson by now, he should give me some money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, people know that now because we've seen, we've seen athletes get robbed oh by God. supposed friends. We've seen athletes. Uh, there was a, a, a safety for the, uh, for Washington. Um, gosh, why can't I remember name? He played for the university of Miami and he, um, he had some friends and they ended up robbing his house. They thought he wasn't home, but he was, and he ended up getting shot and killed. 
Um, uh, I, I don't know why I can't remember him. I'm such an idiot. But you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, Earlier on, is that Tyson's supposed to, if I use the British phrase, spunked his way through $200 million. This includes stuff like white tigers, the cars, literally. And, and I think he was the one who said he had 100 people. And I'll use this phrase euphemistically, employed by him he did not have a hundred employees he had maybe 20 employees and the 80 people that he was paying to be his friends to hang around to go to parties to do stupid stuff with him to to go out chasing girls and whatever else so that's what we're talking about i think now with him being a family man with his kids with his background and with the hopefully god help us the experience and the knowledge of the stupid stuff that he'd done and the, and the things that and the scrapes he got into he's gonna have as i say already maybe now I mean, just as I was using an example earlier, he's probably going to have someone following him around, which we will see after the fight, filming his, his approach to this fight, to this comeback, to this uh, exhibition match. So that would be an interesting documentary to watch right there. And that's going to be two or three people right there all the time just following him around. He's going to have 99% of the time, every time he talks to anybody, he's going to be, uh, uh, for the news, for the media, he's going to be working with someone from public relations. And that's going to be all the time. So yeah, this kind of stuff's way, way more different than it ever was before. It's not, they, even the professionals were kind of amateurish in the old days. It's not like that anymore. Way, way, way different. And the guy's name was Sean Taylor. I, I, I just Googled it. I, What's that? I, his name was Sean Taylor, the safety. Who, uh, <laughs> so, so people learned from his experience. These were guys yeah. that he knew that would, that were just hanging out with him a week or two before. And they yeah. thought he would be out of town but he wasn't. He was at home nursing an injury. And you got you got fine singers. Um, um, he learned from this. It's just like we yeah. learn. And um, you see, yeah. guy athletes today are much more smart, and yeah. um, with with everything from learning the lessons from these guys like Sean Taylor, Mike Tyson, these old yeah. athletes that have made millions and millions of money and then went bankrupt, and yeah. uh, or ended up. Pay your, so, yeah. pay your taxes. Make sure you save some of your money. Uh, don't don't go out chasing the girls. Don't do loads of drugs. That's the lesson right there, guys. Because Steve McNair died and he even had a will. So his kids didn't mm. even get his money. So you have to be smart with your money today. I think he learned from all these lessons. That's look, at, look at some of the, uh, you've got some very sad uh, videos, etc., of old wrestlers. And it's perfectly fine to be sitting here signing photographs for your fans or whatever else. But when that's your only income, because you were spending $100,000 a week or whatever else back in the day, when the tax man, and it doesn't matter what country your income is biting on your ass, yeah, you need to know these things. Uh, and, and again, I think this is because of the background of some of the athletes that we're talking about, uh, their psyche, the, the way that they were brought up, the way that they, they dealt with things. And the only time that they were focused and professional was in build up for fights or whatever else so it can it's that kind of thing i i, I just to give as an example in in professional in in strongman and the strength side which i've come from there's been times in the past where uh, i've been around would-be professional uh, strength athletes who weren't who still working a day job still having to pay the bills or had the wife to support them in order for them to earn any money and when you can see the certain things that they're doing and the way that they're supposed to be, they're not looking at sponsorship properly. They're not doing business deals. They're not doing uh, working with a manager. Eddie Hall is an example from the strength arena, probably the most focused business uh, man in terms of his approach to his winning his championships of all of the athletes and all of the, a lot more of the other athletes behind have started to learn. That's how they need to be. Literally he had a manager pretty much as soon as he's turned pro that he, he uses money to buy houses again straight from his winnings as soon as he started to turn pro that he had a deal with his manager what he would get if he won the world's strongest man what he'd be rewarded with uh, and then deals with uh, companies and stuff like that so this is stuff that the athletes now have to think about which they never thought about before you can go you can just look at the history of boxing as a whole and it was the the numbers that would uh, do away with their money or have to take fights well after their peak and comebacks and stuff like that. I believe uh, Tyson has, through better management of his money and through the deals and through the business that he's done, built his rebuilt his fortune back up somewhere around 45 to $75 million. But when you had $200 million and you spent all of it, what a... What a uh, <laughs> 
to, to, to use the British turn of phrase, what a pain in the ass having to work that hard and that crazy and do all these things. a lot of stuff today with TV and my able monetizing his name. He's doing shows on, I've seen, uh, he did a show just last week on cable TV out in the ocean. So he's doing stuff like that. And you can get a show like that, get some advertisers and you can really make a lot of money. Boom, boom. Like, so that's, that's what he's been uh, making his money on. Today. And I, you know, I think, uh, yeah, he definitely, you know, he blew all, he squandered his money, but he, he was able to, to come back off his name. So he'll be able to monetize his name quite a bit uh, going forward. So guys, listen, we're out of time. We want to wrap this up. Um, we'll definitely have a next, another one next week. We, we love that you guys enjoy our, our podcast for Steve Smee and Mobster. This was 106, Mike Tyson. Talk to you guys next week. Have a good one, mobs. It seems to say, bye-bye.